0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Game Crimes, the show that gives you a little taste of the black market history of video games. I am your host. My name is Jay. I am joined here with my co-host, Mike Bachman, who does not introduce himself. Isn't that right? You don't do introductions?
1: Hell yeah. <laughs> Thanks, folks. We'll be here all episode. We got the rhythm
0: worked out perfectly. That's right. You're here to learn a little bit of video game history from two people who act like if the,
1: the Marx Brothers weren't formally educated. <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) my my favorite silent movie actor is michael keaton It wasn't until i hit 30 that i realized that he wasn't a silent movie actor just the volume on my tv was broken
0: (laughs) we're going to start the first of a three-part series examining communities in video games communities that exist outside of the law and have contributed significantly to the history of video games Today is an interesting topic, one that some folks might be unfamiliar with. It's called Fan Translations, and it is exactly what it sounds like. This is a game that has been published in another country or another language, and folks within a different country have taken the opportunity to modify the game's code to be playable in other languages. And there's a whole bunch of history here that we're going to dive into eventually. Mike, I think the interesting thing here about Fan Translations is that they've been around for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, as, as long as I, I have been on the Internet, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first one that I played was uh, uh, was Mario's Wrecking Crew on the Super Nintendo. Oh, geez. Yeah. So that would have been mid 90s. Right. So
0: even when these games were coming out, they were getting translated soon after. But there's a whole
1: history behind this and we are about to get into it. You said it was a, a three part series. The next part is 16 uh, bit murder squads. <laughs> Losing it over here.
0: So I'd like to go over a brief history of fan translations, how they work and what they are. As far as I could find, the first known fan translations of computer games were done in the late 80s, early 90s, and formally, the earliest one that can be traced is traced back to 1993. A group of ROM hackers, people who edit video game code in order to change how the game works, named Oasis, translated a couple of games on a Japanese computer system, the MSX, into Dutch, and then from Dutch got translated into English. These games were shipped on floppy disks, so it was a lot easier to distribute these fan translations. You could just plop it on a disk and mail it to someone.
1: The English translation came, like actually came from the Dutch translation, so it's translated through two languages before it gets to English. You got it.
0: Wow! And I believe the same translations were also translated into like French as well. So, mm-hmm. like, it's kind of weird. It spread like a spider web once the first few got out. From what I can tell, they were mainly distributed on Usenet, which doesn't surprise me. I'm going to give you a list of games. SD Snatcher, Legend of Heroes, Zack, the Art of the Stage,
1: Rune Master, Ys. I mean, have you played any of those? I tried to play one of the early Ys games. Um, I Mm -hmm. played Snatcher. I mean, I'm assuming that's being MSX. That was Snatcher that ended up on the uh, Sega CD. Actually, that's
0: SD Snatcher, the one that's super deformed and cutesy. Oh, no, I have not played that. Okay. So I guess the, the point I wanted to make is it's not like this is a well-known thing. You would have to be into extremely nerdy games. Let's fast forward to 1996. From 93 to 96, a whole lot changes in the internet, and that is a completely different story, but it becomes more widespread across the world, and files become easier to share. At the time, there was sort of an arms race going on, on forums and, and newsletters, where different... Teams of ROM hackers were all racing to translate the same game into English. Final Fantasy V is the game in question. Final Fantasy V, you know, it's a, Final Fantasy is a relatively famous game series. So the idea that there was a Final Fantasy game untranslated into English set off a bunch of alarms uh, in the nerd communities. From what I can tell, Mike, there were six different teams fighting to get this uh, translation out first. And this would make it the first console game to be translated. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we had Archaic Runes, Multiple Demophores, the Translations Corporation, D-Japanese Translation, Starsoft Translations, and RPGE. RPGE was the first successful translation group which distributed an English patch for Final Fantasy V in October 1997. And a little bit of fun queer history co-authored by a trans woman. And the funny thing about Final Fantasy V is that eventually all those translations came out. So there are like a billion different translations for one game. The race to Final Fantasy V actually excited a lot of people who are maybe unfamiliar with the ROM hacking scene. And so you started to see translations for other games popping up. By 1998, you can see websites that basically house repositories or libraries of patches start popping up. Two specifically that listeners might be familiar with if they're old like myself. RPG Dimension and The Whirlpool. Nowadays, these websites that collect translation patches have been supplanted by romhacking.net, which is the premier place to be looking into these translations, as well as romhacks. There are other translations websites out there, and they're good, don't get me wrong, but uh, romhacking.net is huge. If you're looking for in-progress patches, you can find them on smaller subforums like Temp. Then we're going to move on to 1999. 1999 is significant because this is the first time a full legal injunction has been filed against a fan translator. Now, this fan translator was simply translating a RPG game dev kit called RPG Maker 95 for Windows. RPG Maker is still being created and distributed. You can buy it on Steam. The game's Japanese developer, Ascii, shut down the group entirely by bringing them to court and threatening to essentially run them up on copyright charges. And the group agrees to disband and take down their translations in exchange for getting out of the court case. So there is no formal legal proceeding, but it's enough of a threat to work. Does that make sense legally? I guess yeah. I mean, if you're not uh,
1: familiar with it. Yeah, but also like wouldn't set any sort of precedent.
0: In 2010... Xseed Games, which is a game publisher that specializes in bringing Japanese games over to the US, actually paid a fan translation group for one of their translations instead of paying an internal translation team. The game is called the East the Oath of Felgana, and it was formally distributed with that English translation, and all of the translators got development credit. There's a weird relationship between formal game developers and this community. Where you see a lot of their work showing up in formally published games, but whether or not they get credit for it or get paid for it is a different issue. Yeah, I think in this case it's interesting because Xseed Games does—they're not a game developer; they don't make games. They only publish them, and so it would make sense to me in that case to just pay a software team to hey, give me a finished version of this because you've already delivered it before.
1: But in the in the case of like a fan translation, like are they even like a a a team really? You know, it's like how much work is just. It's just being shared among people doing it in their free time without like mm-hmm. record of how much time is spent on that. Like who's getting paid for that and what legal like, you know, things are you opening yourself up to? There are so many complications there because
0: generally speaking, the game industry has used the translation community as a product testing ground. The reason why this community is allowed to thrive is because a lot of the times the fan translators become formal translators. But you have to do a bunch of unpaid work first to prove you can do the job. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one more a date of note here, 2014. Probably one of the most significant fan translations of the past 10 years. A PSP game called Final Fantasy Type 0 did not make it over to the US due to the failure of that system in the Western market. And Squaresoft, the game's publishers, actually issued a formal cease and desist order to the fan translation group. Once again, escalating things, trying to get things into the court of the law. In this case, he refuses and the translation patch is left up as is. He agreed to take it down and it was distributed basically on other sites by other people within minutes. Excellent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You take somebody to court in the 90s, like maybe you have a you have a chance of getting it taken down and not being out there anymore. But but once I mean, 2014, no, it's if it if it was out there at all, it's out there for sure and i mean square eventually went around and turned around and released that game with a
0: different translation just because they were like hey there's a market for it i am hoping that like by presenting these things in chronological order i've i've communicated the idea that like this is kind of a, a section of of game hacking and rom hacking that's been mostly left alone compared to like some of the things we've seen with like emulation sites being shut down rom hackers actually being brought to court like in the gloob game genie versus nintendo case This is just strictly fan communities.
1: Is it a case where it's left alone for the same reason that like ROM hacking will distribute like an IPS patch for the for for the ROM and not a patched version of the ROM? Because then they're not distributing original code. Kind of. Actually, that is a good segue.
0: Legality-wise, like I said, gray area. There is a generally accepted belief that distributing a game patch itself is legal, so long as you are not distributing the game itself. So you'd be sent, you know, a tiny little file that you would somehow append to an existing game. From all the research I've done, this belief has never actually been tested in court. There are arguments that it might fall under the umbrella of fair use, but, as anyone who has spent any amount of time on YouTube knows, that term in, in Legal Consequences is complicated. I went and looked up a legal guide uh, specifically about fan translations on Helbronlaw.com, and here's what Helbron has to say. The answer lies in fair use. The fair use doctrine provides a limit on the powers of copyright holders and permits and requires courts to avoid rigid application of the copyright statute when, on occasion, it would stifle the very creativity the laws design to foster. If you don't speak legal, that might give you a headache. So let me try to put it into co- like, like normal people words. Um, <laughs> fair use is another way of saying you're using some element in an existing piece of art to make some new, individual, unique, separate piece of art. A good example would be if you watch a movie and they do like a James Bond parody, That's not illegal because it's a parody. The parody falls under the application of fair use. If you're making a YouTube video where you're chopping up your favorite clips from one of your movies, that's a little grayer. Some of the larger distribution channels have argued that that is piracy. And others have said that because copyright law is meant to foster the creation of new material, these things fall under that umbrella. It's phenomenally interesting to me, Mike, as someone who has to write legal jargon for a living that every single YouTube community seems to have a really hot take on what fair use is. <laughs> have you seen this kind of argument? Cause I feel like it's been
1: cycling around the internet forever. Been, I, you know, I've been, a, have been a part of it. <laughs> mm. Well, it's, a, I guess, I guess the difference between me is that I don't make any claim that anything I'm doing is fair use. Yes. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like I've done, I've done like, I've done like pair, like performed parodies and stuff for like, like music for, um, Sure. So sure. like GeeklyCon live shows and the then later, you know, had people be like, be like, oh, you should release that. And I was like, well, I just ripped a like a like a I just ripped a karaoke track. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that, I don't think it's fair
0: use. Everybody loved your rendition of the thong song. <laughs> very
1: little was changed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My personal hot take on fair use is that the law is very broadly defined. The legal history is all over the place. And that kind of sucks because it leaves small creators the burden of determining whether or not they're doing fair use. For the most part, in the US legal system, corporations and moneyed interests have the ability to determine that law. And therefore, there's an internal fight over what is fair use and what isn't. And it's done in little individual bits A good recent example would be twitch the the streaming website kind of not being in control of whether or not you're going to get hit for music you know if you're playing copyright written music or something even within a game itself you've seen a lot of game publishers movie publishers etc claiming that playing a game by itself and using the original audio does not constitute fair use
1: and it's one of those areas where it's like the people that are going to get hit by something like this are less likely to have like the, the resources to either like truly understand yes. it or navigate it. And, and mm-hmm. oftentimes even when like the company that's going to, as we saw, we saw earlier, like even if they may not be right, the threat of a large company saying, you know, take it down or we're going to do a legal mm-hmm. action to you. Uh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> isn't is enough to be like, oh, well, I just, you know, I, I think I'm right, but I don't know. And I don't want to, I don't have the resources to, To find out so i'm just gonna stop yeah
0: so i'm gonna use my work experience here uh because i work for a lot of patent law firms as a researcher one thing that very much leads into what you were saying that notion of you know smaller people who don't have the resources one thing that's very common in my job is that if i'm asked to find some material and it's a really important case my availability budget time spent on these projects could range from 24 hours to four months imagine having to stretch out what you're doing over four months and trying to find the resources while still paying your bills as like a you know your mortgage and your your heat light and that kind of thing
1: not not an army of people named bill that you that you you know you made some bad bets they were all to somebody who happened to have the same first name and now you got to deal with that you found one forum and (laughs) it, it was just based on guys
0: named bill Mm-hmm. And that's on you, man. You could have turned away. Here's the thing that scares me about fan translations. I'm gonna give you a little vision of the future. There are cases of of the bad guys winning, corporations having their say and having these resources taken down or destroyed. In Sweden, there used to be a website named Undertexter. Very cool. Very cool. And it reminds me of a graveyard, which is how you know it's a good translation. <laughs> they offered a huge repository of subtitles, fan-made subtitles for TV shows, anime, film, etc. But Swedish law does not allow for individuals to make transcripts of film without the copyright owner's permission. I'm going to jail. (laughs) Mike's going to jail for fan subbing several things that we cannot talk about.
1: (laughs) I always thought if I was going to go to
0: jail, it would be for that guy killed. But nope, this is what finally got me. In July 2013, the BBC reported that servers and computers belonging to the owners of Undertexter, all of these servers and all of these computers were actually seized by Swedish police. And In a statement made in Facebook, representatives of Undertexter stated that their service is powered by fan-made translations provided for free to the public. People using the site were sharing just text files for films they shows they watched. They weren't sharing any of the files themselves. However, the Swedish National Chief of in- Intellectual Property Crime, yikes, uh, Paul Pinter, stated that our copyright law doesn't allow people to make a transcript from a film that is copyright protected without the copyright owner's permission, and certainly not to make it public. The potential penalties for such actions range from fines up to two years in jail.
1: What if my memory's just really good?
0: I'm going to do a little reading series here. It is an interesting reading series. It's a huge article that you can find on Polygon. The title is A Peek into the Underground World of Fan-Translated Games by Alexa Ray Korea. The earliest part of this article is about the Mother 3 project, Mother 3 being a very popular Japanese game that was never released in English-speaking regions. There had been an enormous, enormous race to get this game translated, similar to the race we talked about in Final Fantasy V. The problem is that the project turned out to be rather complicated. So I'm going to read to you how complicated it became. Quote unquote. In June 2007, Airbracket and two other project members abandoned their own failing translation to join a team of the drama-free mandolin team, a team of rival translators. The project began and would gather more steam, collecting another translator who had also begun yet another Mother 3 localization, as well as two more emulator experts and a programmer who created tools to integrate the language patch into the game. At this point in time in the project, Mandolin noted that team members tended to come and go fairly regularly, with the team retaining 20 members at its peak. Again, like Airbreak's team, working in the time between class and in the job that Netchua Paytek was tiring. And not being paid for a project of this scope comes with the unfortunate side effects of resentment and burnout. So that's 20 people, Mike. Yeah. 20 people working on a single fan translation. This kind of passage really illustrates that these are not sort of like press board factories of people trying to translate as fast as possible. These are folks that have some sort of very, very deep communal or emotional connection to the game they're translating and are putting their back into getting it right. The this article goes on to use that translation patch as the basis for talking about the industry as a whole. And I think that this will shed a little light on why this issue of fan translation is so widespread. More quotes. Localization takes time, energy, and resources, sometimes as much as it does to initially make the game. And for this reason, companies without the bandwidth to spare never bring their games to western shores. A quote from later in the passage reads, There are all kinds of weird legal gray areas. Mark McDonald, executive director of localization company 8.4, told Polygon. Sometimes it takes a few years for a game to come out. Sometimes it just seems like the game won't come out in the West and then it will years later. With things like the virtual console, which is a digital storefront, things don't have to be manufactured. The overhead cost can be lower, so it's easier to bring these smaller niche titles out years after the fact. That's a big part of it there that we were talking about why these localizations are such a big deal in the first place. And I think that passage about them costing as much as the actual development is quite
1: telling. If you're not experienced with like any sort of rom hacking or like or at least have like a basic idea of like how that kind of stuff works, it's not as simple as like oh you have a you have a script for this game and you're doing a find and replace like you're yes, s- yes. you're spending a lot of time in a hex editor where you have to change text at specific memory addresses and they're not always sequential like you may you may sometimes have (laughs) fragments of a sentence at one memory address and then somewhere completely else in the rom or like at least a few a few addresses down you've got another like completely different portion of 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 maybe another sentence or maybe of that that specific sentence it takes a lot more than just somebody who speaks both languages oh absolutely and even if
0: you did speak just Two languages. I mean, translation is also a little more complicated than that. In my studies of literature that I did in college, I did a lot of work on translation actually because I was curious about it. And there are a lot of different schools of thoughts as to what the best approach towards translation is. So I find it to be an art. We're running into what yet another moment on this show where individual communities of people who like video games are finding a way to prioritize that artistic expression over the needs of the market. So this last bit is interesting to me because it's a case study of one particular guy who was working on one particular game. This is a college student who uh, worked on a game called Valkyria Chronicles 3 and was the first to translate this highly anticipated game into English. I'll use some more quotes here from the article. Some project starts are a little more rocky and a little more lonely. On the other side of the globe, Christopher Ting, then a student, was dreaming of a localization for a Sega-published PlayStation-portable RPG, Valkyria Chronicles 3. He spent months wishfully daydreaming about a translated game. He didn't think to work on his own fan translations, however, until he stumbled upon a kindred spirit on the GameFAQ's message boards. "'A few years ago I was in Taiwan and I saw Valkyria Chronicles 3 for sale,' Ting explained. "'I bought it, even though the game was in Japanese and I couldn't understand it. "'I speak Chinese!' so I found an unofficial Chinese patch and played the game and enjoyed it. I realized it was unfair that so many people who love the series don't get to play the game because it's not in English. On GameFAQs, the community pool of video game walkthroughs and completion tips, Ting found a thread about creating a translation patch for Valkyria Chronicles 3, led by a mysterious programmer going by the name of Nightleech.
1: My favorite superhero.
0: (laughs) Him, Spawn, Blood Guy. I like all the cool (laughs) ones. (laughs) i thought spawn was the blood guy i mean he's got cousins okay spawn spawn's cousins (laughs) cousin of spawn (laughs) that does not sound menacing at all Nightleech, the programmer whose real identity remains a mystery to ting even now posted screenshots to the forum showing he could insert text into the game files and after seeing them ting decided to take the leap i thought you know what i have decent confidence in my own english writing abilities he said Originally I began trying to transcribe everything myself, then I set up a website and asked for volunteers. Nightleash was able to extract the text files from the game, and with the help the, from the team that made the Chinese patch, we were able to build full scripts in both Japanese and Chinese to work with. Ting buckled down with Nightleech, the mystery man who had helped make an English version of Valkyria Chronicles 3a reality. Ting noted to Polygon that despite the length of time they worked together, he never really knew who this programmer was. Hiding your identity in this line of pro bono works with one large benefit: anonymity, the bonus of being harder to track down. That is wild that you would have these many people who have no knowledge of each other and spend no time together working on a project like that.
1: Uh, I've actually like experienced something like this pretty recently, though. Like, oh, okay. the uh, F- Fantasy Star Nova uh, for the Vita. Mm. Like, of course, like Fantasy Star Online Two. Didn't get didn't get released in the West for a long time. It finally is now. um, But it has a companion game that was released on the Vita in Japan. that doesn't have an English translation. And there's a group working on one now. And it's it's to the point where you can where it's playable. But there's a discord server where they have the landing room that you get put in that has like instructions on how to get started submitting chunks of translation to the project. So it's it's almost crowdsourced. To the point where, like the anonymity, as the article was saying, is almost a part of it,
0: right? right. Like if you see some guy named like, uh, oh god, I don't know, Snow Cone
1: Lover, and he shows up and he just offers to work on your game, are you going to turn him down? I don't know. I mean, but that's why I that's why I do everything under the alias, the Mike Bachman. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep them guessing. Yep. Hold a little back, then they're always wanting more.
0: My question would be, how many of these? Game translations have similarly complicated, complex stories that we're never going to hear. The story of Valkyria Chronicles 3 is literally like a guy contacts a stranger in another country and they come together to make one game and then never talk or connect to each other again. There's so much of the Internet that we've already lost. And I feel like that's that's kind of the stories that do get lost
1: in the process the other weird thing is that like a lot of this stuff is was done on um was done on forums and things like some of it was private messages for Mm -hmm. sure but like those forums were were at least like archived somewhere generally like um, generally speaking where you can like you can go back and find like large chunks of it but a lot like discord in a lot of ways has replaced that kind of like forum community for a lot of these things that's very true and that stuff's just i mean there's there's i don't I don't know of any like meaningful way to scrape any of that stuff. So that stuff's just going to be like stories for anything that happens from here on out is going to be really hard to come by. Right. And, And I think
0: a big part of this too, is that the internet was meant to be a public good, you know, like businesses exist on it, but it exists due to the grace of being a public good. Discord is not a public good. So if all of these communities have migrated to a community that is owned and regulated by a single corporation, I think history has shown us plenty of times that corporations don't give a fuck about things like archiving or keeping things accessible. Right. Whereas that was a huge part of the internet that was kind of like baked into the ideology of the internet's uh, earliest boosters was that this free trade of information would change the world. One thing I also think is really interesting about these articles in the process of basically just like bombing around on game facts and randomly DMing people. These people are doing the equivalent of millions of dollars of labor for free. Yeah, that really struck me. You don't know Nightleech. based on the name. He's clearly cool.
1: <laughs> for sure. Like for like, sure. He
0: drives a Camaro. Come on. <laughs> but you also don't know who he is. And you two helped release a game that became popular enough to spur Sega, the official publisher of the game, to make a new <laughs> a new Western release for the fourth game. You're seeing this sort of anarchic energy in the internet trickling up into games in really interesting ways.
1: I know the feeling of like putting work into like into say like modifying consoles or just like doing like in that case I'm not generating anything for the company, but I'm like I'm doing something I'm like making something that was released by a company better because I enjoy the process of doing it. And in the case of say Valkyria Chronicles three, putting that out and it being released then generates generates another one and that's not payment at all and and i guess there's also the aspect of like after spending the number of hours required to translate valkyria chronicles three you might never want to see another fucking valkyria chronicles game again (laughs) in your life (laughs) so you know what maybe it's not even worth mentioning
0: (laughs) there is an enthusiast element to fan translations yeah when you go over to romhacking.net for instance Where you're going to see the highest number of fan translations are genres like role-playing games with 80 hours of playtime and a billion statistics to consider, because it is the enthusiast audience that is drawn to these things in the first place. You know, you're not going to find a lot of translated games that maybe only had,
1: you know, 40, 50 letters of text, but are a sports game. Even if you're doing something like this because you enjoy it. There's a lot of people that love their jobs that they get paid for, too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. My God, yes.
0: (laughs) Enjoying it shouldn't preclude you from getting compensated. Get your money. For God's sakes, get your money. So why is fan translation necessary? That's a modern question, you know? I mean, obviously, game distribution is a lot different than the days of floppy disks in the 90s. But fan translations are relevant because, as we were discussing, game companies have to justify the cost of their localizations. Fans don't. During the times of, say, the 80s and 90s, 2000s, there were really limited options when it came to hiring translators for video games. And... I've decided to look at the work of one particular well-known translator. His name is Ted Wolseley. He translated a lot of Nintendo and Squaresoft games in the 90s with lots of text. And his official translation work is a huge difference in terms of what he did and how much labor was involved compared to these sort of enthusiast communities with 20 people contributing and for free. This quote blew my mind, Mike, because he's talking about translating a Final Fantasy game I played the finished Japanese version of the game three times. Then, having videotaped the appearances of the characters, I will sit down and work out a translation that seems to work in English, but will also work with the original Japanese source code. Then if there's time, I can start adapting the game to more non-Japanese tastes. The reason why this blows my mind is because oftentimes he had maybe two weeks, three weeks, a month to do this
1: solo. He wasn't doing the programming. But he was doing everything else. Of course, there wasn't time. You played a Final Fantasy game three times in a row.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he talks in the, uh, in the article I used. It's on chronocompendium.com uh, backslash term backslash Superplay Magazine Wolseley interview. He talks about how they would just send him the game and, and that was it. And then he would turn around handwritten notepads and, and movie scripts for it. It was so
1: disconnected compared to what we're seeing Fancy. See, See, I was about to I was about to suggest that maybe doing an official translation, you would you would have some sort of communication with like anybody (laughs) who worked on the original game to be like, you know, is this what you meant here? Or like and maybe in some like high profile ones, that's the case. But damn, I guess not. Huh? No, not so much. I mean, that's the, the funny thing about video games
0: is that like there's a lot of money in it now and it's much bigger culturally than it was in the past. So there's this real desire to like canonize older games and go like, oh my God, those, nothing will beat the writing in those games. And then you look into the reality of it. And it's like, oh, it's one guy at a small apartment. He had two days to play it and he ate nothing but macaroni and cheese uncooked. <laughs> like <laughs> here's another thing that's really interesting to me about why fan translations are necessary. At the time, especially in the 90s, Popular genres of video games were considered to be unpopular in the United States and not worth the cost to translate. Japanese RPGs, visual novels, dungeon crawlers. These are all sort of games where the expenditure of translation would be much higher than your average project. It would be ridiculous to me to say that like modern games aren't RPG games or that visual novels are, are, are literally more popular in English language markets than they ever have been while still pointing out at the same time that this is a game industry and a game media that tells you that those things aren't marketable. Your tastes are shaped by these things, you know? I would argue that a lot of games like Final Fantasy V, Mother 3, Cave Story would never really been made available to the people in the U.S. without these fan translation groups, because they would have been unmarketable games.
1: Yeah, sure. That's that's, that's wild to me, especially as popular as Cave Story was. And so profitable. (laughs) I would say too profitable. So the
0: interviewer also asked Wolseley why Final Fantasy V wasn't translated officially. Are you ready? Uh Uh-huh. As for Final Fantasy V, we're sure it's a great title that hasn't been hit with too many people in our focus groups. Final Fantasy V is not accessible enough to the average gamer. They tried to change the game, and Wolseley said the tentative working title at the moment was Final Fantasy Extreme.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that the Game Boy
0: Color port? Listen to that. Americans just aren't capable of understanding it.
1: Listen, Americans can't handle Final Fantasy V. We know what they really want. It's spirits within.
0: (laughs) And also the idea that this incredibly rudimentary, easy to play game, it's like, you know, the problem is that it's not extreme enough, actually. (laughs) So we haven't learned how to market to imaginary kids riding BMX bikes.
1: Yeah, yeah, people just don't understand the amount of work that it would have gone in, gone into if putting skateboards into all the sprites <laughs> <laughs> last bit of why fan translations
0: are necessary here's the real fun thing game companies rely on fans translator because of their free labor and there are a lot of examples of illegal fan translation work showing up on resumes that then lead to official work in the games industry i.e paid work meaning that the other work whether or not it's used by the company remains unpaid this is the case back in 1996 And in some cases, companies use these unofficial translations without licensing the transcript from the translation groups. Meaning companies can sue a fan for translating their game, then use the translation in a published version of the game and profit off of the translator's work. The person doing the work is the one absorbing all of the risk. Woof.
1: I mean, I knew about like, I knew about like the, you know, like the virtual console, like nes rom headers stuff where it's like no this is literally like nintendo nintendo dumped MU paradise before filing a cease and desist yeah nintendo's got the one functional saturn emulator just in there and they're keeping
0: it from us <laughs> the reality of the translators taking all the risk even though they don't get the money is so endemic to the game industry that it would require a severe cultural shift yeah To quote Wolseley, One thing I guess a lot of people don't realize is the difference between a fan translator and a professional translator isn't that big. It's a matter of experience level. People who get into professional translation always start doing it for fun or as a hobby. In fact, I'm completely serious when I say that every professional translator I've ever known has started as a fan translator. Usually someone will find the way they like translating or sharing stuff from other cultures, so they'll translate stuff they enjoy. I think most translation localization managers expect job applicants to have done personal projects for experience or fan enthusiasm. And look, this is not exclusive to video games. I mean, you're told to have a GitHub if you're a coder, right? You're expected to have a, a, a role of videotape if you're expecting a job based on your video. But I think yeah. it's pretty clear that the pipeline from amateur to professional here is whether or not you do enough amateur work that is unpaid and then maybe you'll get paid for it. Who knows? I find it to be a sort of one of the weirder aspects of video game business. There's a ton of these practices and communities dedicated to this stuff, but formal game companies can't really acknowledge it because they benefit from them.
1: I've got a lot of feelings about this, but not a lot of words. <laughs> Listeners, we had to cut out Mike headbutting his wall. <laughs> it's doing those those haymakers you're hearing so much about at the top of the episode. It's a weird thing where it's like, yeah, like coders have to have a GitHub and like you have to, you know, you have to have a demo reel if you're going to be like an animator or something. But like neither one of those requires you to have like violated an intellectual property law first.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. And like to use a comparison for other for other pieces of artwork, you hire a translation expert, someone who knows something about prose, someone with some experience with poetic language because you can never really translate one-to-one between languages. Yeah. Whereas this is just like, hey, did you, did you, re- did you really like Mega Man? Well, did you, did you like it enough to modify the game code to change his name to, I, I don't know, Sepulter <laughs> or something?
1: Well, Me- Mega Dan.
0: He- <laughs> well, then here's your job, my friend. Thank you. I wouldn't say it makes video games seem small, but it does make video games seem like a place where creative labor isn't always valued very much.
1: I think that's putting it mildly. <laughs>
0: To go down to the, the section here of how to play these games because I think that is very relevant we've been talking about them for a long time but as always we want to provide some real practical help here so I made a quick list I think emulation is going to be your best option here emulation is you're using your computer or your phone to mimic a game console you can find a lot of translated games that work really well with emulators And you don't necessarily have to put together the translations yourself. Although the patches themselves are not necessarily illegal to distribute, the ROMs, i.e. the game images, are unless you own a copy of the game yourself. So you're already breaking the law by using a translation patch, kind of, maybe, who knows.
1: Which is why I own a complete set of everything, (laughs) from everything before the Xbox 360. (laughs) I <laughs> just a really good collector that's why i have all those roms no other reason hell yeah you should see it he's got a big old game
0: pool he throws them into the pool
1: yeah they're in there <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's like one of the like one of those gotcha moments. Like police show up at my door. It's like it's like prove to us you have a copy of Grow Lancer. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, you're welcome to look through my collection. And it's just a giant like like the Springfield tire fire. <laughs> it's just like big pile in my backyard of games. They're like what are we gonna do?
0: The CIA busts into your house and you're standing on your chair like that guy from Death Note, and you're like. <laughs> Oh, excuse me, officer. I believe I have 24 hours to delete those ROMs. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I think is also interesting about these uh, translation patches is that you don't necessarily need to be a translation patch from one language to another. There are a lot of translation patches that re-translate, maybe writing over poorly existing English localizations or just offering different approaches on the same script. Another thing you could do with this uh, translation approach here is that you could look into some of the newer emulation features, such as Auto Translate, which is a feature built into RetroArc, a, a popular emulator suite. This suite allows you to have the Google Translate app try to translate your game on the fly. And this is where I handed off uh, like an expert quarterback to my friend Mike here, because you did a thing.
1: Yeah. You <laughs> we know <what>? we, we <sighs> did a thing. We. We did, and, and you know they say that you, you can't uh, like like Jay was saying you can't really translate uh, language one to one. There's a lot of nuance there, but not to a computer, and not to and <laughs> and absolutely not to I would say not even to humans at Google. Uh, but there, <laughs> there's a uh, it, it, this this feature is nice, and yes, it will just directly translate uh, what's on your screen. But what if there's an analog element to that? And so mm-hmm. there is a Google Translate app for phones for ios and android um maybe your zune i don't know it's meant for like you know traveling abroad you point it at a sign it'll give you a loose translation of of what that game is saying and so so we played a couple of uh, a couple of untranslated sega saturn games yes where i put my phone on a tripod with the app open and then streamed it to my computer and played using the video feed from my phone which then looked like garbage uh (laughs) (laughs) and oh my god i because it's meant to be like pointed at signs and the and your camera is going to be moving all over the place instead of just taking one sample of the text on screen if you're doing it through retroarch it's got the data for like what text is being shown on screen or at least it has a very high resolution scan of it if nothing else Mm -hmm. And it can do that translation and it only has to do it once unless what's on the screen changes. But because they're expecting you to move your phone around with this app and point it at different things, it's constantly pulling. And that means that if your camera's focus changes (laughs) or like anything, (laughs) it's going to redo it and it's going to come up with a different result. (laughs) And so so we'd have instances where it's like you just kind of see like five or six things that the person could possibly be saying and then just choose your favorite. It's definitely the least effective way. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, I, 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 one of the games that we spend a lot of time with is a
0: game that I have always held a torch for called Linda Cube. It's never been translated into English. This game is relatively texty. There's a lot of story stuff in it. And boy, did we give our translation engine some patience to really try to figure out what was going on there and, and tell us a clear story. It's really not capable of that, though. This feature is fine for games that aren't text heavy, but a lot of the games left untranslated that people have an interest in translating are quite text heavy. So it, it's a useful feature, but not a universal feature. And if you're interested in seeing us dink around with Google Translate, you can head on over to our Twitch page. That's twitch.tv backslash game crimes. And you can see us trying to build this translation engine and doing what
1: we can with it. It's not the worst. It's definitely the most fun that I've had doing it. yeah that's that's fair (laughs) i think it's it is way more interesting than like doing it the normal way but (laughs) (laughs) it's more interesting and less effective and therefore we are
0: all in yes so let's say you are a a collector right like like you were saying you like to have physical copies of your stuff Mm -hmm. there is a a phenomenon that's been popping up in recent years called reproductions or repros and these are uh, translated games using one of these translation patches like we discussed actually flashed to a cartridge or a disc and then sold through legal channels or sometimes less than legal channels. But it's actually become a recent trend in the recent years for game publishers, game developers, uh, specialty companies to purchase the licenses for obscure works, get those fan translations, and then actually have a first-time formal release. A good example here would be the game Holy Diver. The, The big negative here is that you will end up usually paying out the teeth for these repro cards. Do you have any repros yourself, Mike?
1: Oh, God, do I? I don't think so. I think I fl- I flirted with it a number of times. and never actually yeah. ended up picking one up.
0: I've seen them come through stores and they look great. They're almost like indistinguishable from other cards. But at the same time, it's like, you know, they're not legit. They might run on the, the normal system, but oh, the, it, the label looks a little different. Or, you know, right. Uh, it, it's just different enough to look off. Now, of course, another option is if you're here to talk about uh, translations, you can always look at what the big companies are doing. So, for instance, Nintendo has been plugging away at its it retro catalog, I guess. So that's the theory, <laughs> at least. And they have recently decided to do one of their own official translations for one of their older games, uh, an NES game, Fire Emblem, that they will then release in a new form through the digital distribution service. I wouldn't wait up for game companies to be doing this work, though, to be frank. That Fire Emblem game has had a translation patch for 20 years, I think, 2015, something like that. That's the fun stuff. We just gave you a quick tour around the world, so to speak. But we also have some game reviews to do. We always do game reviews on this show. and You can watch us play the games that we review here on our Twitch channel. That's TV backslash gamecrimes. And for this episode, I decided to present Mike with two games in the spirit of, uh, of the episode. They both have fan translations, and both I would consider to be ridiculously unmarketable within within English language markets. Uh, I think once we talk about them, you can see why. The first game that we're talking about today is called Garage Bad Dream Adventure. This is a 1999 Japanese horror game. It is a graphic adventure a la Myst, developed by Kinotrope and published by Toshiba. The game itself was designed by a surreal artist, Tomimi Yuki Sakuba. I have some more information about this game uh, involving the really unique circumstances behind it getting translated. But Mike,
1: what were your just impressions of playing garage? I don't, I don't feel, I feel like I tend to get a lot, especially in like the, in like the PS one era of games. I tend to get lost in those kind of games, like very easily where it was like, kind of this, this early thing of like the era of like, you can click on things you know, this very like Windows 95, like Windows 3.1, where they're like, oh, we can have things that don't look like buttons that you can click on and they'll make noise. and Yeah. And so they did a lot of that in this game. But it's all you know, it's like as a result, like I don't I don't feel like the industry really learned how to telegraph, like (laughs) what you should click on (laughs) and what it'll do. So while it was very surreal and I was getting like, uh, you know, I was kind of I was interested in in where it would go. I, I did not have the patience to get very far yeah for sure for sure Um, this is a sort of game genre that i would say is lost now is that fair to say Yeah, i'd say so the elements of these games it it was a time where like they could put in these elements but not really other elements because of the way they were designing them like when you talk about mist like mist had this like 3d environment where it's not like they could have really rendered a rendered that environment in a real in a real time and added a combat system or like something like that right right yeah yeah yeah. so you get elements of what mist was but in other games that are like a broader genre i would say for sure and and i would
0: say for the listeners if you're not familiar with this type of adventure game uh what i would call a scavenger hunt game where you are presented with this incredibly busy screen with a billion things you could possibly touch, but you have to touch the right one to make the game go forward. It can be incredibly disorienting. You do the same thing forever. You just click on a billion things forever. You don't even know if the thing you clicked on is necessarily what moved the game forward. One thing the Garage does quite well, though, is all of the in-game components seem to be handcrafted. There's a lot of like puppet work and and woodwork and like metal sculptures in this game. Yeah, that it almost makes it seem like this is a, a more of an interactive
1: art gallery than anything else. They didn't really talk in 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 terms that you could like easily parse out uh, early on either. So like I, God, I I forget what the resource was that they kept telling me I didn't have enough of. But no, I had. They said <laughs> you didn't have your you don't have your voice. Yeah, your a, voice. Yeah, which, yeah, I understand in, in theory, but like, <laughs> but also they gave me like one dude seemed to give me directions on where to go to have my voice. And then I went to that dude and he told me I didn't have my voice. That's like, <laughs> OK, you kind of just summed up the experience of playing the game. I think the premise of the
0: game is that you are reborn as like a, a robot, like you're you're a human being who is reborn in a robot's body, essentially. But you're like a weird robot who is really wacky and edgy and like, oh, he's made with mixed media art in the late 90s. Maybe he's cool. (laughs) Um, It's indicative of the rest of the experience forward because you as this robot just kind of wander around confused, not sure what to do or what's going on. There's no one to tell you what's going on. And I think that the artist intentionally went out of their way to make the environment look very unearthly. the surreal part of this is actually i feel like it gets nailed out of the park
1: i will say i kind of identified somewhat with the environment because it was like made from old barn wood and as like and as like somebody who grew up with horses and had to be like in a lot of like barns that made him uncomfortable uh this (laughs) is like this this i felt right at home in the worst way Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as you see some rotting uh, farmhouse woods, you're like,
0: "I'm at home," and also, there's a good chance I'm gonna get injured.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Love to get injured.
0: <laughs> Love to get injured. Love to step on those big nails, brother. I uh, had my tetanus shot. So I picked Garage for a specific reason, Mike. It's not just that I I like it, although I do. The first release of this game was limited to three thousand copies, so only three thousand copies of, of Garage existed in Japan when it was released, and. The game's publisher actually withdrew from publishing altogether during the print run, meaning that there's likely even fewer than that in the wilderness. So in Japan, where the game was released, considered extremely rare, with only maybe a few thousand copies in existence. The last time it appeared on a trading site like eBay, it went for the equivalent of more than $3,000. Wow. Right? Like, (laughs) I mean, I like this game, but it's not $3,000 good. Mm Mm-mm. Mm -mm. The reason why we're able to enjoy Garage now is actually due to, of all places, 4chan,
1: the uh, worst website on the internet. At least in a high contender. 4chan.com, the only reason the owner of Hitler.com can sleep at night.
0: (laughs) Garage was a fascination of 4chan's video game board, and when the copy of Garage showed up on auction, pooled a bunch of money together to purchase a copy of it. From there, a translation patch was made. They purchased this game, a fan translation patch was made based on this purchase, and the game's creator does not own the rights to it anymore, so it will likely no longer be manufactured. With the permission of the original game creator, this digital version and translation patch has been made available online in the year 2020 for anyone to enjoy and download. I think this has a really interesting story behind it because it's very rare that you can actually say, oh, um, this rare, weird, lost thing, people just grabbed it and made it work. What do you think is going on with this game that it became such an object of fascination?
1: I mean, I think anytime that something's like, something is known but inaccessible, it just you know yeah. it becomes like it becomes bigger than itself um true. it's, it's you know true. it's like uh take paprium paprium okay. you know being this like this this you know genesis game that has been in development for for like over eight years and has gone through like a ton of like development trouble and you some people that that backed it got it some people didn't and there may not be a second run but who knows like hmm. i didn't want it until i knew all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, man, I wish I had a co- I wish I had a copy of that. It's like oh, this mysterious game that, you know, that they only made 1500, f- however many copies they ended up making. And you just you can't play. Of course, people are going to latch on to that. Yeah, that's, that's 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 I mean, that's exciting, right? There's this thing that you can't
0: have and and there's photos of it and you can and you can touch it. And one of the other unique things about garage is that within this genre, garage stands out. I played a lot of those style adventure games at during the time they were coming out in the nineties garage has a lot of personality. It's very unique. No, none of these other adventure games look like it. And I would say that a large part of that is due to the, the card sort of like atmosphere that the game creates.
1: That type of thing's happening. Like seems to be happening more and more too. Is like things just get uncovered. Like that, like, like dinosaur planet, the N64 version of what became star Fox adventures. Like, like a pretty close to content complete version gets discovered and like then a scene forms around it to start working on like actually putting it back together so you can see what that thing originally was <laughs> there's always stuff like you know s- stories of like a box with like source code being kept like being stuffed up <laughs> in the, above the dropped ceiling is just all over the place whereas like i think i think we're gonna we're we're in this point where we're gonna have this period of that stuff happening more and more where like we're to like the nostalgia area of stuff that was on media that would have survived the amount of time it takes to get to this point. And then yeah. we're, then we're going to like slowly work through all of that stuff that's available and get to. OK, now stuff is like was being put out on the Internet and like worked on like as it came out. So now there's less of those stories. Yeah, um, for sure. There may still be stories like this that come out, but I feel like it's going to there's going to be less after a while.
0: I actually got to disagree with you on the last part, because I'm with you on everything else up until there will be less, because I think that what's what's happening here is kind of a conflagration of two broader ideas that have been leaking into video games for the last few years. People are kind of realizing that video game companies are not great stewards of history. Mm -hmm. You know, it is not hard to find people actually complaining about Nintendo's labor practices now, whereas 10 years ago, that was not really a thing. You know, there's there's a lot of contemporary criticism of some of their distribution policies, uh, things like that, to where people are going, hey, uh, maybe this weird relationship with this video game company where I become a fan of them like a sports team <laughs> it kind of has unintended consequences. Sure. But I think the other thing that's crossing over with that I think is actually much broader than video games is a desire to return to a pre content model of art that I think is a large part nostalgia, but it's a nostalgia for like a different type of art. If that makes sense, not necessarily a piece of art in general. Yeah. Now everybody makes their own art and puts it online and it's theirs and they can go and say whatever fool thing they want. Thank you for listening. Uh, But but, (laughs) um, the pre content era is very much this sort of like, there's a history you can follow this one particular company you like. You know, if you like this one game, logging onto a single ROM site will allow you to see 30 other games in that series. And that's really not how people were engaging with those things at the time. The whole like Earthbound Zero story about how we only know that Nintendo translated the first Earthbound because someone found it at a garage sale. um, Yeah, that is not exactly a well-known story or anything. Right. But it's a huge part of history that kind of just got uncovered because people like this neat inaccessible stuff that has kind of a shine on it because of that inaccessibility. People are trying to take back history, I think, or at least there's some, some sense of their own history. Let's move on to the next game. We reviewed this one, Mike, I feel like you were about ready to commit your life to understanding (laughs) in a cabin in the woods somewhere. (laughs) And that game is called LSD dream emulator. It was developed and published in 1998 by Asmic Ace uh, conceived by Osamo Sato, another multimedia artist.
1: LSD is the only reason I want a PS1 core in the Mr.
0: <laughs> Instead of me describing what
1: happens in this game, why don't you give a, just a quick, brief impression to the audience here? Oh, God, what what doesn't happen? You, you start alone in the woods, you, walk, you <laughs> walk around the corner and you see a you see a fireplace, but what's on the fireplace? It's a bat. The bat kills you. You wake up. <laughs> You're now alone in the same house. You walk around that corner expecting to see the bat. You don't. You see a you see a cave. In that cave is a fountain, <laughs> like a giant, like <laughs> a giant monolith. Perhaps to your failure, perhaps to something much more sinister to come. Holy shit! Like there's a there's a horse. You run towards the horse, but the horse is always just out of your reach—a prize you cannot possess. why do you want that horse you don't know it's maybe because it's there maybe because you're alone in this world and you know you always will be Uh, i'm not talking about the game when i say that (laughs) holy shit this game like (laughs) i don't understand what's happening they give you am i remembering correctly that they give you stats i was in a i had a fever dream they like give you rewards but i don't know what they mean it almost doesn't matter (laughs) Like, you're too busy trying to figure out what just happened.
0: So if we were to go like real boring with it, the, the whole premise of the game is that it's a first person game where there's no combat. There's only movement. And anytime you touch anything, a wall, an object, anything, a new world is procedurally generated around you. And there are themes of things that show up. I think Mike actually experienced a, a nightmare horse multiple times. Mm hmm. Um, but the idea is that every time you open the game up, you're going to get some sort of different dream. I think
1: the nightmare um, horse is tapping into some unresolved feelings that I have from growing up with horses um, oh, okay. and, and resenting, resenting my family for making me you know, deal with this with their hobby that I had no interest in. I I'm very I'm very much invested in the idea that this <laughs> this PS one ROM was trying to tell me things. It's a personal <laughs> attack. <laughs>
0: So this game is like that's the most boring way to describe it. I think that Mike's description is actually the best, <laughs> the you, best way to you describe it. what you
1: do in the game. I described how you feel when you're playing the game. Yes. Practically,
0: you only spend about, what, 10, 15 minutes at a dream um, yeah. before it just brings you back to the title screen and you
1: can it, do it all over again. It, se- it seems much shorter than that, but also somehow an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that we had to cut you off at 90 minutes because you're like, I want to keep
0: playing this forever.
1: Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> for sure.
0: We would some say we would still be there. This game is another one of those games that definitely would never have been brought over to the West. I cannot see anyone publishing this period, but it is fascinating. It's a fascinating game. The artist who conceived it, Osamu Sato, is not really into games and, and didn't like games. He wanted to use the PlayStation as a medium for art which is just like when you make a game that isn't fun to play. But (laughs) (laughs) this game is fun to play. This game's concept is actually based on a real life dream diary that was kept by an employee at the game developer. This employee kept the diary for over a decade, and everything that shows up in the game that's procedurally generated is based on her dreams. So that dream journal that she wrote, you can actually read. It was released alongside the game as a book called Lovely Sweet Dream. That means that you can read these dreams that this other person is having and then go and have Mike's experience where you actually live through them. What she said about the game is, quote unquote, there's a difference between actual dreams and remembered dreams. Even the ones recorded in my dream diary are different than the real thing. The dreams reconstructed by the artists that read them are different as well. Just don't analyze them or read too much into them. Enjoy this book as if you're watching <laughs> it. It's walking too late a for dream. that, buddy.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this game was also fan translated recently in 2020. Do you know why this game would need a fan translation, Mike? I don't. Because after you do X number of dreams, you are presented by written pieces of art poetry <laughs> like
1: <laughs> that oh, have something
0: to do with the dream. Didn't we see some of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The game itself is like a poetry repository of a visual art gallery. The music is great. Great sound effects. I don't know. This is this is a weird ass game, uh, but in the best possible way.
1: I would love I don't even know how you would do this while still mean while still remaining like faithful to the original. But like, I just I want more. I want just like a, I want this game to just have access to a much bigger library than what it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because after a while, like, you know, seeing that demon horse again, like, you know, I mean, no, it's still like I, I chased after it just as hard the second time. (laughs) 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 But just like, you know, being able to 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 just like I I would just I would I would stay in this game for a long time, probably longer than I played. Wow. Thing that really strikes me about LSD
0: is an experience I had with it about 10 years ago or so where I think I put about 10 hours into this game the first time I discovered it. And just for reference, Mike, I never saw a horse. So maybe it is telling you something. Oh, wow. The experience I had was that I was playing it at the same time as a couple of other people on a game forum I was going to. And what surprised us in the discussion was how little overlap there was in our experiences. That when like when people talked about what the game looked like to them. It was like, yeah, that's the setup. We were doing the first person walking and touching, but what they felt and what order and sequence of events and the, even the colors of things never really one-to-one. Let's wrap this up. We've got two games to discuss and let's just give it a simple, should our listeners give this a shot? Let's start with garage. Mike, what would you say? Should our listeners give garage a shot?
1: (sighs) You gotta have it. You gotta have a level of patience that I am not prepared to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, if it, it, I would pass on it personally. I mean, unless you're like, you're just really into like that era of like adventure, not a, not even adventure games of that like exploration, like point and click exploration kind of game. Like, it's too confusing.
0: I think Mike's totally right here. The vast majority of people are going to try to play this game and get very overwhelmed and and bored very quickly. I went and picked up this game after we streamed it and Mm -hmm. grabbed a walkthrough online. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I found that after about an hour or so of playing the game, I kind of had a pretty good impression of what I was going to be seeing. And I think that if you are into sort of unique visual presentations, games that for lack of a better way to put it could be called ugly and pretty at the same time, Garage does have a lot going for it but I would actually side with Mike here and say it's probably not worth your time unless you have these interests in the first place. As for LSD, Mike, how do you feel about LSD?
1: Oh, God, everybody should should play this. It's cheaper than a therapist. Uh, (laughs) It will it will show you a side of yourself that you that you've never known. I feel like this game knows me better than my wife. It's, you know, I mm. I want to I want to raise my raise my children inside this game. <laughs> well, and it, it introduced you to that horse that lives outside your window now. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's crazy how low poly the real world is now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's low poly. It's not that you're you've gone like your eyes are pointed in two different directions from too much internet. <laughs> I would say. Definitely play this game, this game rules. It's so interesting. And even if you only spent 20 minutes with it, I guarantee you, you would have an experience, a unique experience, uh, unlike anything else. This game is uh, relatively hard to find these days, but like I said, recently patched in 2020, so it's out there. All right! Thank you everybody for joining us on Game Crimes, episode five, the story of fan translations. I've had a great time bringing this to you. I know it's a little more of a little low-key episode, but that's all right. It's the first in a three-part series on game communities. And next up, we will be talking about ROM hacking and communities as social projects and the ways in which... Corporate interests intersect with historical narratives. My name is Jay. You can find me online underscore jayhi We're going to be talking about Sonic Mania. Hell yeah. The Sonic the Hedgehog Retro game released in 2017 that was actually created by a team of well-intentioned ROM hackers who later made Sega publish their own damn game. But before we get there, I have to do all the boring business shit and sign off. My name is Jay. You can find me on Twitter at Opal and Juniper. You can also find me on the SHU podcast telling superhero sci-fi stories about corporate robots ending all life in the universe.
1: I'm Mike Bachman. You can find me on Twitter at the Mike Bachman. Find me on the Greetings Adventures podcast, uh, which is at d and podcast. You can also find me like 256 polygons deep in a static downer in LSD.
0: Now, I would really, really encourage you to come back next month for the next episode in our series on communities, Gold Medal Games, Sonic Mania. And not just because Sonic the Hedgehog is involved and we all love that little rascal, but because we're actually going to be joined by our first ever guest, Sid Menon from the We Thought About Games podcast. And I think we had a hell of a discussion. So come on back next time we release one of these bad boys. And until then, happy gaming, nerds.
1: Bye.